to Fast Asleep with Gina Marie. Hello, everybody. I'm Gina, and, well, Marie says hi. Thank you all for being here, and thank you so much for commenting, reviewing, and subscribing. We love that. Um, we are just classic stories. There's not any filler here, so if that's what you want, we're sorry. Oh, and speaking of commenting, um, where did I put it? Um, I had an interesting comment, and it's from, I want to give this person a little privacy. Let's say it's from CL, okay? CL writes, here it is. I don't use fast asleep just for sleep. You now make my long commutes seem shorter. That is so nice, and I so appreciate it. But I'm mentioning this because you're worrying me a little bit. I'm really hoping that you're not driving during those commutes. I mean, if you are, great, but I just don't want you to fall asleep. I know, these stories often have exciting points, and you can't necessarily sleep through every moment. But all of you, please, just use us wisely. And thank you for using us at all. Now, today we have not one, but two stories from one of the true giants of 20th century literature. That's Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And this will be our third episode with his work. You can go back to Fast Asleep episodes 237 and 163 for more of his wonderful stories. Many of you, I mean many, have already enjoyed those. His settings are Latin American, and they have translated beautifully into dozens of languages, including English, fortunately for us. The writings of Señor Márquez often fall into a category known as magical realism. Doesn't that just sound lovely? Where he has taken everyday events and he's just kind of sprinkled them with miracles. Okay, also, in addition, he has never shied away from speaking out and writing about political issues. And you'll hear a little of that today. That's not really an easy feat when you're born and raised in Colombia. Um, he was the eldest of, chil of 12 children. That couldn't have been easy. And like our last author, Sarah Orne Jewett, he lived in his grandparents' house. It was a big house that was said to be inhabited by the ghosts that his grandmother would deliberately attract with her stories. Another writer. Um, Gabriel was known for pleasing. Oh, well, both his critics and his readers, of course. That's also not easy to do. Let's see how he does with us today. Tuck in, everybody. From Gabriel Garcia Marquez, The Torment of Three Sleepwalkers. Ah, but first, let's hear this story, also his, entitled, One of These Days. Mm -hmm. 
the sun rose, lukewarm and without rain, Aurelio Escovar, a degree-less dentist and dedicated early riser, opened his office at six. He took out dentures from the display case, still in their plaster mold, and set a fistful of instruments on top of the table. He put them in order from biggest to smallest, like an exhibit. He wore a collarless striped shirt, closed at the top with a golden button, and pants held up by stretchy suspenders. He was strict and lean, with a gaze that rarely corresponded to the situation, like the blank stare of a blind man. When he had everything arranged on the table, he rolled the drill towards a spring chair and sat to polish the false teeth. He seemed to not think about what he was doing, but he worked with determination, peddling the drill to make it whirl, even when he was not using it. After eight, he took a break to look at the sky through the window. He saw two brooding vultures drying themselves in the sun on the ridge of a neighboring roof. He went back to work, thinking that, well, before lunch, it would rain again. The grating voice of his 11-year-old son shook him from his daydream. Dad. What? The mayor says you got to take his tooth out. Mm. Tell him I'm not here. He was polishing a gold tooth. He held it at arm's length and examined it with his eyes half closed. From the waiting room, his son yelled once again. He says you are here because he can hear you. The dentist continued to examine the tooth. Only when he put it on the table with his other work finished, he said, Great. He went back to using the drill. From the cardboard box where he kept things to be done, he took out a many-pieced bridge and began to polish the gold. Dad! What? He still had not changed his expression. He says if you don't take out his tooth, he'll shoot you. Without rushing, with a remarkably calm movement, he stopped pedaling the drill, pulled back the chair, and opened the bottom drawer of the table. There sat his revolver. Okay, he said. Tell him to come shoot me. He turned the chair so that it sat in front of the door, his hand resting on the edge of the drawer. The mayor appeared in the doorway. He had shaved his left cheek, but the other swollen and aching, had five days' worth of facial hair. In his withered eyes, the dentists saw evidence 
of many anguished nights. He closed the drawer with the tip of his finger and said smoothly, Take a seat. Good day, said the mayor. Good day, said the dentist. While the instruments boiled, the mayor rested his skull in the headrest of the chair and felt better. He sensed the ice-cold atmosphere. It was a shabby office, one old wooden chair, a pedal drill, and a display case with china knobs. In front of the chair was a window with half curtains as high as a man's head. When he sensed the dentist nearing, the mayor dug in his heels and opened his mouth. Aurelio Escobar moved his face towards the light. After looking at the damaged tooth, he adjusted the jaw, cautiously pressing with his fingers. I'll have to do it without anesthesia, he said. Why? Because you have an abscess. The mayor looked him in the eyes. Okay, he said, and tried to smile. The dentist did not smile back. He brought the pan with the boiled instruments to the work table and took them out with cold tongs, still not hurrying. Then he rolled the spittoon over with the toe of his shoe and went to wash his hands in the wash basin. He did all of this without looking at the mayor. But the mayor did not take his eyes off the dentist. It was a lower wisdom tooth. The dentist repositioned himself and clenched the tooth with the dental clamp. The mayor seized the chair's armrests, pushed all his strength into his feet, and felt an icy emptiness in his kidneys. But he did not say a word. The dentist only moved the tooth without animosity, more so with bitter tenderness. He said, Here, you will pay us back for our twenty dead, Lieutenant. The mayor felt a crunching of bones in his jaw, and his eyes welled with tears. But he did not breathe until he could feel the tooth come out. Then he saw it through his tears. His pain seemed so foreign that he could not 
understand the torture of the five previous nights. Leaning over the spittoon, sweaty, panting, he unbuttoned his military jacket and felt for his handkerchief in the pocket of his pants. The dentist handed him a clean cloth. Dry your tears, he said. The mayor did. He was shaking. While the dentist washed his hands, he noticed the suspended ceiling caving in and a dusty web with spiders' eggs and dead insects. The dentist returned, drying his hands. Rest, he said, and rinse your mouth with salt water. The mayor stood up, said goodbye with an indifferent military salute, and went towards the door, stretching his legs without buttoning his military jacket. Send me the bill, he said. Send it to you or to the city. The mayor did not look at him. He closed the door and said, through the screen, It's the same thing. Stay with us. We'll be right back. now, also, from Gabriel Garcia Marquez. The Torment of Three Sleepwalkers. Now we had her there, resigned to one corner of the house. Someone told us, before we moved her things, her fragrant clothing, smelling of fresh wood, her weightless shoes for the clay ground, that she could not get accustomed to the slow life without sweet tastes, without any other charm than the impenetrable marble solitude always pressing down on her. Someone told us, and much time had passed before we would remember it, that she, too, had a childhood. 
maybe we did not believe it then. Oh, but now, seeing her sitting in the corner with eyes like saucers and one finger placed over her lips, maybe we recognized that once she had a childhood, that at one time she could sense the early freshness of the rain. Yet her body always bore the silhouette of an unexpected shadow. All of this and much more we learned that afternoon when we realized that on top of her tremendous internal life, she was completely human. We discover this when suddenly she began to howl as if inside her glass had shattered. She began to call each of us by name, choking out words between sobs until, until we sat next to her. We began to sing and <laughs> clap our hands as if our yelling could weld the scattered glass shards. Only then could we believe that she had a childhood. It was as if her screams were a revelation, as if they were a flourishing tree fed by a deep river. When she pulled herself together, she leaned forward a little and still, without covering her face with her apron, still without blowing her nose and still crying, she told us, I will never smile again. The three of us went to the patio without speaking. Perhaps we believed we could read each other's minds. Maybe we thought that it would be better not to turn on the house lights. She wanted to be alone, maybe, sitting in the dark corner, weaving her last braid. It seemed to be the only human thing about her that would survive her transformation into an animal. Well, outside on the patio, oh, submerged in the deep mist of insects, we sat and thought about her. Oh, we'd done this many times before. Oh, we could have said that we were doing what we had done every day of our lives. Nonetheless, that night was different. She had said that she would never smile again. And we knew her so well that we were certain the nightmare had come true. Sitting in a triangle, we imagined her inside the house, her mind elsewhere, incapacitated. She could not hear the countless clocks that measured the time marked and meticulous in which she was turning to dust. Oh, if only we had the strength to wish for her death, 
we thought, in unison. But we wanted her like that, ugly and frigid, like a selfish contribution to our hidden flaws. We were adults, oh, even before this, many years earlier. She was nonetheless the eldest of the house. This same night, she could have been there, sitting with us, feeling the warm pulse of the stars, surrounded by healthy suns. She would have been the respectable woman of the house if she had been the wife of a good, middle-class, bourgeois man, or the concubine of a punctual man. But she became accustomed to living in one single dimension, like a straight line, perhaps because of her vices or virtues, perhaps because they could not align with her profile. For years we had known it. It did not even surprise us when one morning after waking, we found her face down on the patio, biting the ground in a hard, static pose. And then she smiled and turned to look at us. She had fallen from the second-story window onto the hard clay of the patio and had stayed there, stiff and concrete, flat on her face in the damp mud. Later, we found out that the one thing that remained intact was her fear of heights, the natural panic in front of empty space. Well, we stood her up by the shoulders. She was not as sturdy as she had seemed at first. On the contrary, she had soiled herself, her intestines free from her will like a warm corpse that had not yet begun to stiffen. Her eyes were open, her mouth dirty from the earth that must have tasted like the dirt of a tomb. When we turned her to face the sun, it was as if we had put her in front of a mirror. As I held her in my arms, she looked at us all with a lifeless, sexless expression, which gave us a sense of her true absence. Someone told us she was dead. And then she was smiling with that cold and calm grin, like she did the nights when she wandered half awake through the house. She said she did not know how she got to the patio. She said she had felt very hot and she was hearing a piercing, high-pitched cricket that seemed, as she had said, to be trying to knock down the wall of her room. And then she'd begun to recite the Sunday prayers with her cheek pressed to the cement floor. Nonetheless, we would find out that 
she had not been able to remember any prayers. Just as we later learned that she had lost all sense of time when she said that she had been sleeping, holding up the wall that the cricket was pushing from the outside. She said that she was completely asleep when someone pulled her by the shoulders, separated her from the wall, and turned her face up towards the sun. Sitting on the patio that night, we knew she would not smile again. Maybe in that moment, her severe expression hurt us, and we felt a hint of the pain we would feel, witnessing over time her dark and determined, isolated life. It continued to deeply hurt us, just as we were hurt the day when we saw her sitting in that same corner and heard her say that she would never again wander about the house. Well, at first we could not believe her. For entire months, we had seen her walking through the rooms at every hour, stubborn and slouched, without stopping, without ever getting tired. At night, we heard the steady murmur of her body, heavy, moving between two darknesses. Most times, we would stay awake in our beds, hearing her stealthy walk, using our ears to follow her through the whole house. Once, she told us that she had seen the cricket inside the mirror, sunken, submerged in the solid transparency, and that she had gone through the glass surface to reach it. We did not know in reality what it was she wanted to tell us, but oh, we all realized that her clothes were wet. They were plastered to her body as if she had just come out of a pond. Without trying to explain the incident, we decided to exterminate all the insects of the house to destroy the objects that obsessed her. We had the walls cleaned. We ordered the bushes on the patio cut. And it was as if we had restored the silence of the night. But then we did not hear her walk nor speak of crickets until the day when after dinner she kept looking at us, sat herself on the cement floor, still without breaking the stair, and told us, I will stay here, sitting. We shuddered. We could see that she was beginning to resemble something that was already very much like death. Well, much time had passed since this until we became accustomed to seeing her there, sitting with her braid, always half 
woven, as if she had dissolved in her solitude, as if, although you were looking right at her, she had lost the natural ability to exist. Because of this, we knew that she would not smile again. Because she had said it in the same convinced and definitive way in which she had once told us that she would not walk again. It was as if we could be certain that later she would tell us, I will not see again. Or, or maybe, I will not hear again. We would find out what was the most basic form of humanity as she would go on willingly eliminating her vital functions. Spontaneously, she would terminate sense after sense until the day that we would find her resting against the wall as if she had fallen asleep for the first time in her life. Maybe there was much time left before this, but us three, sitting on the patio, would have wished for that night to hear her sharp and sudden wail, her broken glass, to at least create the illusion that a child had been born in the house to believe that she had been born again. Our introduction information today came from Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Conjurer of Magic, by Jonathan Candell at the New York Times, and other sources in our show notes. Our music today is Close by Carl Schintz and Night Poem by Tony Barea. Also, Night Song by Peter Fippen. And remember, you can reach me at fastasleepwithginamarie44 at gmail.com or you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. And please, keep us here for you as you comment, review, and subscribe. I thank you for listening. Our code word, patio.